Today, we're going to talk about back to school. Would you agree that education is probably one of the most important things in our society, let alone for our kids? Well, today we're going to talk about education in depth, and we're going to talk with, I believe, one of my heroes in education, and that's Kaylin Ford. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed, because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So my guest today is Kaylin Ford, and she is the founder of Canada's first classical school in our country, both that has campuses in Edmonton and Calgary. And we're going to talk about uh, all the issues related to education, and particularly with you as parents as our children head back to school. So welcome, Kaylin Ford. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me. No, it's interesting uh, at, at Frontier, we've certainly got an amazing group of fellows, senior fellows that have done a lot of work in education, including some that were uh, instrumental in establishing charter schools in Alberta years ago. But it, it, one of the things that we've advocated for is a voucher system where um, a key principle is that the money follow the student. It go to parents rather than a bureaucracy. Um, do, you, do you think that would ever happen in Canada from your perspective? Uh, like the system in Sweden comes to mind where you have schools basically competing with each other to meet the needs of the children rather than just simply having a kind of a public monopoly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's true in education as it is in any field that monopolies tend not to be very high performing. Um, and uh, so there's, and I don't, I don't necessarily like using the language of competition because that, mm -hmm. that just, I think it, it has some negative connotations when you're talking about education, right. but, but it's very true. Um, having choice in education drives everyone to become better, to be um, more responsive to what families are looking for, more exactly. accountable for, their, for the education that they're delivering. Um, so something like a voucher system would be interesting. Now, there's all sorts of pitfalls in how it's designed um, that could make it go awry. Um, so there's, I think, many, many ways to do that badly. Uh, but Alberta already has a kind of almost quasi-voucher system because Alberta does fund students, at least a portion of funding follows them, whether they're in private or independent schools, um, separate schools, uh, even homeschooling families receive some provincial funding, um, and we have charter schools. So uh, it's not the same amount across each of these systems that children are getting, but um, but it is kind of working toward that model where there is meaningful choice for families. Exactly. And I, I like that theme that um, it's about empowering parents to make choices. So speaking of parents, it's back to school time as we look to um, the new year. Um, when you look as a, a leader in education, are there key points of advice that you'd offer parents as they go back into the school system? Is there something right off the hand? I know that we're going to get into much more detail here, but um, off the top, are there key points of advice for parents as they look back to going back to school? Yeah, well, um, you know, I was trying to think about how would you know as a parent if you're walking around a school, you're on a tour, you're, you know, visiting, you're, if you're volunteering in your child's class one day, what are some of the things that you might look for that are mm -hmm. 
potential indicators. Um, one, I think, really important thing is what is what can you learn about the culture of the school? And so much of that, I think, can be gleaned from, well, what does it sound like inside the school? Mm. Um, you know, are, do children have clear un, an, a clear understanding of the rules, of what is expected to, of them, of what they do in this place? And that could be even very granular things like, how do they walk down the hall? Do they walk in silence in cues? Do they walk on the right side of the hall or are they all over the place? Are they running? Are they shouting? Are there clear, clearly communicated rules about what kind of behavior is considered acceptable? Do the children understand those and are they enforced clearly and consistently? So, um, you know, at our school, I think one of the ideals that we try to work towards is we want our hallways to feel calm. Mm. And so the children understand that they should cue, that they should be silent in the hallways. Um, that they should be respectful. Uh, so if they see an adult, a lot of them will say, you know, good morning, how are you? Um, and so I would look for sort of subtle indicators like that. How does it actually feel? What is the kind of oral experience in the school? Um, another I, I, a similar thing is, well, what, how are the hallways and the classrooms adorned? Are they sort of cluttered, messy? Do they have lots of sort of posters up? Um, or is there something else? Are they trying to uplift people? Are they trying to create an aesthetic environment uh -huh. that is also, you know, that's pleasing somehow? Um, do they let parents into the school? And now all schools need to place limits on, you can't have parents sort of wandering through classes uh, haphazardly, but you know, if you asked for a school tour, would you be able to get it? Would you, is there transparency in terms of what your children are learning? Uh, are there opportunities to volunteer and to go into the classroom in that capacity? Um, and I think that's telling. I, I wouldn't really trust a school that is unwilling to let parents, say, go on a tour, for example, hmm. um, and step into classrooms in a structured uh, uh, environment and, and see, what, well, what are these classrooms like? Um, in the classrooms, I would say, are teachers actually teaching? Are they standing at the front of the class and delivering lessons? And again, if you haven't been in a school in a long time, that might sound like a silly question, but a lot of relatively new graduates of education faculties. Um, I've had some people tell me that they were instructed in their education programs that they should never be caught at the front of a class delivering a lesson. Uh, why, why would that be? Well, this goes back to the educational philosophy of people like Paolo Freire, who's mm -hmm. profoundly influential, one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century, really. Right. And his book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm -hmm. is almost unheard of outside of education. But it's a big seller in those faculties, isn't it? Well, it's such a big seller in those faculties that mm -hmm. it is apparently the third most cited work of social science in history. So think about that. It's almost unknown outside of this context and yet is still so widely read and cited. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and believe me, you really need to read it to believe it. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and one of the ideas that Freire developed was this is probably what he's most known for but i don't even think it's the worst of him mm -hmm. is he he said he developed this idea a kind of false dichotomy he said that most traditional education is a is a banking model of education where the teacher is making deposits of knowledge into the minds of passive students and this is well, i mean one i think this is a kind of false premise mm -hmm. Um, teachers are obviously teaching content and teaching knowledge and imparting knowledge to students, 
But the idea that students are sort of empty-minded, vacant, receptive vessels into which things are being passively deposited, that seems like nonsense to me. And I've never met a teacher who thinks that way. Right. Um, but he, he set this up as this kind of straw man. This is the banking model of education. Uh-huh. We should be aimed at a kind of liberationist model of education where the teacher is no longer presuming to know things that students don't. Because that's a hierarchical relationship and any hierarchical relationship in this way of thinking is necessarily oppressive. It's a relationship of domination Mm. and it should be leveled. So these hierarchies should be leveled. Teachers should not be trying to teach specific knowledge because that's oppressive. They should rather be co-constructing meaning with their students on a more equal footing and sort of facilitating the process of meaning making. Mm-hmm. So there's a sort of vaguely kind of Rousseauian overtones to yeah. this project as well. So th- this is kind of maybe hard to understand or comprehend if you're, if you're not familiar with these um, uh, hallways or, or places of, of, of absurd thinking. It, <laughs> it's often seen through the lens of victim and oppressor, right? And so Absolutely. you, you have a situation, Kaelin, where, Teachers and I, I, you know, there's many good teachers, uh, but they're they're being led through their faculty of education, and and this is obviously my opinion, where a lot of the curriculum is just simply tripe. It's 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 utter nonsense, um, as they teach um, uh, a philosophy of education which does not serve the student, let alone the parents or society. No, absolutely. This world of um, strange ideologies, and I would call them really toxic thinking, it's always seen through this Marxist lens of victim versus oppressor, really isn't about serving the student, um, let alone parents and society. So, it, it, you know, in that world, how do parents make sense of it that they're getting, uh, their children are getting a high quality um, education? Like, so um, do things like tests matter? Do standards matter in your, in your world? Yeah, well, I absolutely. Um, now, our specific approach to testing and to grades uh, is that we don't want to just be focused on sort of teaching to the test and having students be kind of grade sharks, mm-hmm. right? So like our report cards, actually, the first couple pages of our report cards are focused on the student's cultivation of moral virtues and intellectual virtues. And then we get into sort of specific academic performance. Oh, interesting. So what do you um, mean by moral virtues as an example? Well, so things like, like fortitude, mm. um, you know, is this a, or is this a person or intellectual virtues? Is this a student who is willing to take intellectual risks? Is, are they willing to be wrong for the sake of getting closer to the truth, for example? Wow. Um, that almost so, sounds revolutionary today. Yeah. And so, you know, things like looking at what is, well, what is the depth of their inquiry? Are they asking questions in order to de- more deeply understand a question or do they just want to ask a question so they know what to write on the test, mm. right? Um, so, you know, we, we're trying to promote that, but absolutely standards matter. And I think high standards matter. Uh, you know, there's a lot of teacher, there's, you'll see sometimes these movements to eradicate um, standardized testing, uh, to eradicate merit, merit-based programs. Uh-huh. Because when you do standardized testing uh, or when you have merit-based programs, a natural differentiation occurs. Uh-huh. I won't say a hierarchy because I, um, you know, your performance academically doesn't necessarily say much more about you as a person. But, uh-huh. but a hierarchy, at least along those academic planes, develops. 
And if you're the kind of person who believes that hierarchies are necessarily malevolent and evil and need mm-hmm. to be leveled, mm. one solution is, well, let's get rid of the things that reveal them. Let's get rid of the tests, get rid of the standards. Exactly. Um, and, and it's also, I think, a way of escaping accountability mm-hmm. for an, a, you know, a curricular approach and a pedagogical approach that is failing kids. Okay. Well, well said. So I did want to look at uh, the bigger picture on education. Uh, we've talked a lot about uh, looking at your school through um, a, a critical lens, a thinking lens uh, for the, the sake of your children. If we look at the larger challenges of education, is there an easy answer to saying where we're at as a country? Well, we've lost the understanding of the the telos of the purpose or the ends of education. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, I, I think you characterize it as an ideological war. I, I might even call it a spiritual war is, mm-hmm. a, is sort of playing out between um, some very different irreconcilable views of what this is for. And, um, you know, I, I, I think one of one of the ways that we could approach this is what does it what does it mean to educate citizens? Um, and I think there are some people who would kind of look quixotically at you if you raise that question. Um, you know, but like, let's take the question of what is what should civics education look like? Uh-huh. Do we want to produce people who know about the history of their country and are proud of it? Um, or do we want to produce people who are sort of unshackled from the burdens of historical knowledge mm-hmm. or who look back on the past as something to be repudiated and dismantled so as to create room for a new world? And exactly. you can't reconcile these two things. So you need to pick one. And we're not in a, I think, I don't think we're doing a very good job nationwide. So in, in many ways, Kellen, you're really bringing or shedding a light on the reality that we're not, we're not coming necessarily from the same worldview. Uh, and, and this kind of helps explain the differences or debates in education from a larger picture. So if you don't really believe in our traditions of liberty or kind of democratic decision-making, then you'll be advocating for something different that may not be democratic. Is that a fair comment? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's absolutely true. Um, Again, I, I think there's great wisdom in our inherited customs, norms, prejudices. I say prejudices again in the positive, not the negative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, now that wisdom is not absolute. It's not, it can't, it's not that it can't be changed or shouldn't sometimes be changed as circumstances mm-hmm. um, are, you know, evolve. But, um, but there's a great deal of wisdom in the past. And there's, there's something incredibly wonderful about being able to partake of the great conversation mm-hmm. um, and to see where we come from and to recognize the incredible fragility of civilization. Yeah. I mean, this is something that our students starting in kindergarten start to learn when they learn about sort of the earliest civilizations and the transition from a nomadic to a sedentary society is how incredibly complex it is, how rare it is to, to actually achieve sort of peace um, and a relatively just society. Um, and, and I think we want people to approach that with gratitude. Exactly. And I think a lot of students are not getting that. I, I think that's a, a great summary of, in many ways, the incredible responsibility of educators to pass on that inheritance of really civilization and how we can live together peacefully 
in a tolerant way, learn about the truth, have open discussion and healthy debate. That is a gift of civilization that we're passing to the next generation through education, no less. That's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, I think there's one way to summarize the conflict of visions here is the people who think education is about producing agents of change, mm. whereas to me it's about producing fit stewards of a civilizational inheritance. Well said. So let's dive a little bit deeper then when we talk about education being so-called agents of change. Um, often we summarize this in the form of words like wokeism, um, this kind of uh, hyper-political correctness with, I would refer, edges of totalitarianism, where you have people advocating things like diversity, equity, inclusion, reconciliation. I mean, the list goes on and on. Surely you're not against these things, Kaelin. Like, what? how do you put that into perspective? Because that's why you have the symptoms of that way of thinking, that ideology, and, and, and this is a question, believe it or not, that's why you see so-called drag queen hours or strange books that may be sexualizing children, like e.g. minors, um, or you celebrate Pride Month, not just a day or, you know, obviously we want to welcome everyone, but that's this is not exactly what we're talking about. Or how do you put this into perspective, Kaelin? There's a, I think you, there's a few threads there in what you just said, how to put this in perspective. Um, wait, wait, I mean, first you mentioned Pride Month. Um, I don't, it's not a coincidence that Pride Month falls in June and that so many schools celebrate it for the entire month, because I think by that time teachers are tired. Mm. And um, I, I think it's an excuse to check out a little bit in some cases. Mm. Um, so, and, and to me, and this is something that one of our teachers raised and he's, he's said, who's quite, you know, publicly and open about the fact that he's gay. And he said, this is ridiculous. Just think of the opportunity costs. Um, you could be teaching real lessons. You know, they covered an entire 500 year span of history in the month of, of June. <laughs> and um, so, you know, that, that's one angle is just there's tremendous opportunity costs. You have one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges as a, that school leaders face is how do you achieve all of the curricular outcomes that you want to hit in a very limited span of time? Um, you know, in like 180 days and really only, you know, six-ish instructional hours per day when you factor in lunch and recess and yeah. everything. Every it's day really is hard. precious, isn't it? It's, well, every minute is precious. I mean, I think a good school is one that has figured out how to get their routines down so that transitions mm -hmm. are as fast as possible because you actually, you really, time is your is your most scarce resource. And yeah, you think about the opportunity costs when you're wasting that time. Um, okay, so, so, so here's your thought, Kaylin. To what extent, and I know that it's hard to generalize, but certainly in conversations with a variety of education leaders, we see an interesting dichotomy. We see people that are ideologically all in on this diversity, equity, inclusion agenda. That's, that's one area. But there's another agenda going on, and that is that this kind of wokeism, uh, this uh, uh, ceaseless bowing down to the uh, diversity agenda is really about covering the um, for weak performing schools, schools that are really not performing well on the ABCs. And this is really cover for them. Do you think there's some truth to that? 
Um, in certain contexts, I think that that makes sense to me. Um, and it's not a it's not a hypothesis that I had really um, considered very much before, but it certainly seems plausible mm-hmm. that um, if you focus on these things, uh, yeah, that it can distract from failures that are occurring uh, in your school academically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and if you really go all in on it, then you get to the point where we were that we were discussing earlier, which is you can start obliterating standards, evaluations, tests in order to cover for those failures in the name. And you do that in the name of equity. You exactly. say, look, there's you yeah. know, group level disparities in how Asian children are performing as opposed mm-hmm. to Hispanic children. So that's, you know, prima facie evidence of discrimination or racism. So we need to eliminate the test. Exactly. So, and, and I think that's, that's something worth exploring as well, is that many of these programs um, that purport to be about improving people's condition about sort of freeing them from a state of being oppressed, um, they do the opposite in practice. Um, you know, what happens in practice when you eliminate, let's say, standardized testing is that you close off the avenues for high achieving but low socioeconomic students hmm. to escape from uh, from that low socioeconomic position, right? So um, what happens when you tell students constantly that they are either the oppressor or that they are oppressed by dint of their race? Hmm. You do not improve their their conditions materially or spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, you make them much more attuned to grievance, um, attuned to the possibility of slights, even where none are intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is actually a very an immensely painful way to live. And I, I think it bears mentioning that this idea of microaggressions originated in education faculties. Um, Sorry, what is a microaggression, Kaylin? So. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure that I. Can I hope I didn't it. offend you by asking you what well, is microaggression. Exactly, right? So microaggressions would be sort of, you know, where a person is not is probably not intending anything offensive, nefarious, mean, uh, but the other party nonetheless feels somehow slighted. Hmm. And so the idea of microaggressions, which has been promoted emanating from education faculties, and now it's kind of everywhere, um, is that you should be on, I mean, I think it promotes a victim mindset that you are constantly being assaulted in almost invisible, very minor ways. Mm -hmm. And this is a terrible thing to do to people. So when you look at your school, do you have uh, drag queens enter your school? Do you have books that... uh talk about uh, graphic sex uh, with minors how do you handle that issue and are you a welcoming school of of course we're a welcoming school we try to provide the best education to every member of our community Mm -hmm. um but uh we have standards for the kind of literature that passes through our doors that it should be of aesthetic moral literary and informational value Mm -hmm. um and you know we believe that Parents are the first educators of their children. We're not going to keep secrets from parents about what their children are learning in school. Now, what do you, what do you mean by that, Kaylin? Well, I, I mean that many schools have, um, well, that one, they're not transparent about the curriculum they teach. Um, there is a, there's a statutory obligation, certainly in Alberta, and I assume in most provinces, for example, that when students are going to be learning about sex, human sexuality or religion, at least not in a kind of non-incidental way, that, stu- that teachers uh, need to inform parents. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of schools are not doing that. And partly it's because they consider, again, I'm speaking in b- very broad generalizations, mm-hmm. 
partly it's because they consider that material about um, sort of, you know, sexual orientation and um, identity, gender identity, mm-hmm. they don't consider that to be about human sexuality and so not necessarily subject to those statutory requirements. They consider this to be some of the language I saw recently out of Ontario was they consider this to be teaching about human rights and no one should have the ability to opt out of learning about human rights. We wouldn't, we wouldn't frame it that way. Um, we would say that this is, that would very much be fall under the, the remit of teaching okay, about. But the facts knowledge. are, these are children, they're minors. Yes. Parents should be in charge yeah. and that overrides everything. Shouldn't it? Yeah. And I mean, if, if we were teaching something that we were ashamed to have parents know about, I would say that's a huge problem. Um, like we would never teach anything that we, if, if we were concerned that we would get in trouble with parents for teaching it. Okay. But to be clear in many schools, and I've heard this from parents, they are basically punted out of what they know what's going on in the classroom when it comes to the teaching of some pretty graphic sexual stuff. And these are their kids, they're minors. That's the parent's job to talk to them, not the school. How do you think parents should get involved in their school? Is there an easy answer to that? Well, I I think there are several ways. And what I would say, try not to do is, you know, don't necessarily treat the teachers as, or the administrators as an enemy, right? Um, Don't assume bad faith or assume Mm -hmm. that they're doing the worst or sort of feel that they need to be kind of spied on and checked in on, but be actively involved. Um, You know, do homework with your children, ask them what they're learning about. Um, go to parent-teacher conferences, volunteer in the classroom if you have the ability to do that, ask for a tour of the school um, so that you can kind of see what the classroom environment is like. So I, I think those are all excellent things. I certainly be in contact with your school trustee, um, with your elected representatives, with the you know, uh, and make sure that your voice is heard there as well. Um, you know, it's funny, I, charter schools are sometimes accused of not being accountable because we don't have elected boards of trustees, though many charter schools do have elected boards, but elected by their parents. Um, and to which my answer is, how many people in the world do you think know the name of their school board trustee? Um, and do you really think that if you went with complaints to that person, that they would be sort of seized of it immediately and be on the problem? Um, so it, it's not necessarily uh, something that would be immediate, but I think, you know, a chorus of voices eventually can make an impact and, uh, and, and individuals, if you speak up, if you're strategic about it, can absolutely make an impact. Kaylin Ford, you're an outstanding leader in education. I want to thank you so much for this far-reaching conversation today. And thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight and your courage. And uh, we wish you every success. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.